when you listen to a, uh, a group of a brass ensemble, you get a sense of what the second coming will be like. I, could, I can uh, hardly wait to hear the sound of the trumpet that wakes the dead. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you on this Christmas morning, we come as children. Thank you that you love us as a father. Help us, love to, to, Lord, to serve you with our whole hearts. Now, Lord, we put our lives in your hands, praying that we would contemplate what this incarnation means and what it costs and the great hope it gives. In Jesus' name, amen. A few Sabbaths ago, I was in a hurry on a Sabbath morning. I come in very early when I can. Occasionally I don't make it as early, but this Sabbath morning, about 7.30 in the morning, I was pulling out of my driveway, and as I had walked out the door that morning, I said, Lord, uh, spare me from anything that could fall out of these trees. It was a very windy morning. Where I live, the power goes off often in storms because of the trees. I've never, I've never prayed that prayer on the way out of my house on a Sabbath morning before. And as I left that day, I can see myself on the sidewalk walking towards my little Prius and asking the Lord to protect me. As I drove down my driveway, which is about a thousand feet long, gravel driveway through the woods, a strange thing happened. I saw my neighbor pulling in at that early hour of the morning, which was strange in and of itself. They had come up the road I was about to drive down. I live on a dirt road in the midst of mature trees. And I started down the road that the driver of the white Volkswagen had just come up. And when I got down the bottom of the hill and turned right, I stopped because, you ever do this? Where's my cell phone? And uh, it's a device that can be so wonderful and is so necessary. And I didn't have it. I thought, oh, I'm, this is too bad. I'm in a hurry. So I'm sitting beside a little lake uh, on this dark dirt road, and I spin a car around, and I drive back up to my house, which is about a quarter of a mile away. And I run inside. I didn't know if I'd set my phone on the car or what I had done with it, but I knew I needed it. So I thought, it's dark. I don't know. Maybe it fell off the car on the way. I'm going to get my wife's phone, and I'm going to dial my number. Now, fortunately, on this dark morning, my phone was set up to flash when it rang, and I could see that it had fallen between the console and the seat. So I snagged it out of there, took my wife's phone back in, jumped in the car, and headed back down. Down the dirt road, turned right by the lake, and I'm getting ready to start up the road over the first hill as I head up towards Pokagon Road, and there is this huge tree laying across the road. Now, it's not uncommon for trees to fall across roads, especially in mature forests. But what was strange about this was that my neighbor had just driven this road. And I thought to myself, not going that way. So I spin the car around and head home. When I got here that morning, I talked with one of our pastors and our AV leader about this and said, you know, I'm not sure, but I think the Lord may have just spared my life. Um... Later, after eating lunch, my wife got on the phone and texted our neighbor and asked if the road had been open when she drove through. 
The answer was yes. So that means within the period of a few minutes, this very large tree had fallen across the road. Now, I don't know that in eight years of pastoring here, I've ever had a stop and turn around moment. Um, maybe. Uh, my mind's not a steel trap, but usually when I walk out the door, I've already checked to see what I have. But that morning, sitting at the bottom of that hill, uh, this phone, which was on my body, but not, or at least in my car, but not on my body, uh, I believe was God's way of turning me around. I had to zig and zag and dodge other things laying on the ground just to get to a paved road to get here. Why does that matter? Uh, my wife is completely convinced that the Lord spared me, and I think there's a really, really good chance. And if the car, if my neighbor's car, I, the Lord did, if my neighbor, what are the odds of my neighbor getting home at that morning, at that moment when I'm pulling out, just so I could confirm that that tree hadn't been laying there all night long? You see, it's a unique moment to where she came through, the Lord spared her life, and the Lord then spared my life, and in those few moments that this large tree implanted itself across Jones Road. It matters to me because I'm on a journey, and as of late, this church has been on a journey, and that journey has related to the proclamation of what sovereignty of mind, body, and soul means. What does stewardship mean? of my own body me relative to the social dynamics of our culture right now, which is running scared and redefining love in its own ways. What are you talking about, Pastor? On that very morning, I was slated to preach a sermon that I've since relabeled as mandates and morality. Now, the Lord certainly could have hemmed me in if he wanted by dropping trees all around me. But for me, as I'm making this journey, especially at times as a feeling rather, rather singular voice, the Lord himself is shepherding me. And so as I'm walking out the door saying, Lord, spare me from anything falling out of these trees, the idea that within a few minutes a tree would fall across the road I was to be driving on seems like a peculiar answer of prayer to me, especially since my neighbor was there to evidence that moments before the road had been open. This morning, I want us to all understand we're on a journey. You're going somewhere. It's like that old story told in God's Minutes of the Christian talking across the fence with his neighbor who was successful in a wild sort of way. And he kept asking him the question, and what then? And finally he comes to the end of his life as he's been prompted by his neighbor and he says, and what then? You see, friends, our decisions are directing us on a pathway that is upward or downward, that is heavenward or hellish. And the journey that we're on is one that is being determined and decided day by day. The good news is there is a God who is guiding us. You're not here in this sanctuary by an accident. You're not watching online by accident. There is a God who is guiding us. Uh, the other day, my wife, who had been in dialogue with someone in our orbit of interactions, uh, wanted to drop them by a little Christmas gift. But the problem was, the wife wasn't home, only the husband. And so she asked me if I would be willing to take it. The only problem was I had my own agenda lined out for the day. And for many men, I won't speak too generally, but for many men, once they get a goal and they've lined out their destination, they're a little bit like a train that's got a lot of momentum behind it. And they don't want to try to make turns to the left or the right. 
And I said to my wife, I don't really want to do this, but I will. And I'm a little ashamed that I even said that much. So with gift in hand, placed in car, I found my way to its destination. And when we got there, I have to admit I should be. I hadn't thought about it like this so much, but I should be largely chagrined at God directing and redirecting our paths, in this case, my path. Because when I arrived at this location, only the husband was home. And it turned out that he's in the midst of a serious battle with a very serious disease, cancer. And he needed to talk. And I needed to be there to listen and to care. And what I was afraid of actually happened, although what I was afraid of didn't really happen. It wasn't 20 or 30 minutes of chit-chat about unimportant things. It turned into be a very rapid and direct dialogue about his cancer. And I don't know totally what his belief system is, but I know he believes in God. And before it was all said and done, his wife pulled up and standing there in their barn, I said, could I pray for you? And they said, oh, yes. And this man, big, strong man, when I finished praying, you know, some people are a little bit unsure of themselves. Sometimes when you finish praying, there's just silence. But this man that I don't know if he goes to church or not, when I got all done praying, he said, amen. When you find people in times of need, I should say when God shepherds you to people in times of need, there is a much more direct connection. The journey, my friends, is such that the shepherd wants to lead you into those very kinds of experiences. But for many, including myself, there is a colossal temptation to trivial pursuits, things that are much less important. And this morning, I want to go on a journey with you that is imperative for where we're living in our day and our age. I want to go back 2,000 years and then 3,500 years And I want us to see how God has been teaching the lessons of listening to the guiding hand, the voice following the hand of the one who wants to take us on a journey. Take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. I want to look at the life of the wise men, their journey. In Matthew, chapter 2, we find ourselves almost immediately in Jerusalem. Now, this is a strange place for the story to begin, and there is much that has to be inferred and some that is affirmed by the commentary found in the Desire of Ages. But in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. And we've come to worship him. Bang. All of a sudden, a journey that took days, maybe weeks, is dumped on us. And these men who have been journeying much before they arrive at the gates of Jerusalem are stymied and confounded by the fact that nobody knows where the Messiah is. This journey is predated by an experience that all of us have to have. You see, There are stories that need to be reaffirmed and re-familiarized with. Go back, if you would, to the book of Numbers. I want to look at the story before the story. In the book of Numbers, we have 
an apostate prophet that God will use to reach into the age of Jesus and perhaps even today. Numbers, looking at chapters 22 and onward. Numbers chapter 22. It says in verse 1, Then the sons of Israel journeyed, and they camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that the children that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us, as an ox licks up grass. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of the people, to call him, saying, Behold, the people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the service of the land, and they're living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come and curse this people for me, since they're too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So their entourage arrived at Balaam's house. Balaam said, I need to talk to God. God said, don't go. They were sent back. Now, depending on how you look at life, you either look at it through Balak as Balaam is posturing. Not enough important people, not enough money. So he sends back more important princes, and he sends back more money. But God has spoken to Balaam, and he said, this is not a journey for you. Don't go, unless they ask you. Well, that night when they all go to bed, Balaam tells them in, in responding to their request, I'll have to talk to God. Well, this sounds a lot like the first story. And that morning they get up and they leave, and they don't ask Balaam to go. So that means Balaam is not supposed to go. But Balaam has a problem. Balaam is covetous, and he wants that money, and he wants that honor. So he gets on his donkey and he starts trying to make up for lost time. We know that Balaam's donkey runs out into a field. It doesn't matter how hard he reins the donkey back onto the road. The donkey is getting off the road. Well, uh, Balaam is that freight train. And the freight train is falling behind the money train. And so Balaam whips out his staff and he begins beating the donkey. Poor donkey. The Bible says that the righteous have concern for their animals. Listen, friends. Christians are full of compassion for God's living creatures. But the donkey is yet needed, and with a little bit of spurring, the donkey is prompted to go just a little bit faster until they come to those two stone walls that protect those two vineyards. And this time, the donkey, instead of having somewhere to go into the field, just presses hard against the stone wall. The problem is Balaam doesn't have a good set of cowboy boots on, and his foot is crushed between the jagged stones that have been pulled from the field that are constituting the fence. And once again, the staff comes out, and the welts are rising on the donkey. He gets back on the donkey, and he prompts the donkey again, and it's going faster and faster until finally the donkey comes to another place where there's nowhere to go, and he's a smart donkey. He just stops this time instead of crushing Balaam's other foot against wherever the impasse the, the walls around him are. 
And Balaam gets off and he whips out his staff again and he starts wailing on the donkey. And this time the donkey says, have I ever treated you like this before? And you know, it would have been quite a moment. For those who don't believe that God has a sense of humor, uh, certainly this story is recorded especially for you because Balaam doesn't miss a beat. He keeps talking to the dumb animal. And all of a sudden, his eyes are opened, and he sees an angel with a sword drawn. And the angel says, it's a good thing for you, you've got such a smart donkey. Because if, if he hadn't done what he had done, yours is the life that would have been taken. Balaam presses on in the journey. He's not dissuaded by the angel. He's instead going to fulfill a divine commission in spite of his money-grubbing heart. And when he gets there, he tells Balak, the king of Moab, the same kind of thing he told those who came to summon him to go. I'm only going to be able to say what the Lord says, which is what God had told him. And three times they go to high places where they can see, and altars are built, and bulls and rams are sacrificed. And three times Balaam blesses Israel instead of curses him. And finally, the king puts his hands together and basically says, that's it, we're done. But there's one more blessing to be had. And I want you to see it. So go back to the book of Numbers. And I want you to see this final blessing, which is what puts the wise men on their journey. The final blessing. God is going to open the future. I'm looking at Numbers chapter 24. Verse 15. Numbers chapter 24, verse 15. He took up his discourse. This is now the fourth blessing that's going to be conferred on these people. And he said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. I don't know what all Balaam saw, but he did understand not just the momentary triumph of Israel as they came to the promised land, but he understood that there would be a future beyond that for a king would be raised up. Verse 16, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and who knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. There's something about this that's compelling him to worship. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and he shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. I won't go farther this morning except to say the wise men who were probably of similar lineage who may have very well traversed the very same path that Balaam traversed to catch up with his moneybag Moabite friends. The very same journey is where the wise men now coming from the east find themselves, and as they go down the hill of the Mount of Olives, which is separated by the Kidron Valley, there's a brook that flows between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, as they've been following this star night by night, the star goes out, and it's exactly above the temple before it does. 
So imagine the expectation when these men walk through the gates of the city because every night they've been studying the Scriptures and their conviction has deepened. And by the way, friends, you can't pull this kind of trip off by yourself. The camaraderie, the bonding, the fellowship. And, and by the way, friends, the dream that tells them not to go back to Herod, Desire of Ages says it was a dream that prompted them to go to Jerusalem or to follow the star, I should say. There's so much about this story. We dare not make the journey as we seek to find and see the face of Jesus in the second advent without the blessings of each other, without a study of the Word. We should expect that the three sources of information that prompted and motivated them will be there for us. Number one, there was natural manifestation that the time was near. Listen, there will be signs in the heavens, unerring omens that Jesus is coming back soon. God is going to get the attention of a skeptical world, but not everybody's watching. Jesus said, watch and pray because you don't know what hour the Son of Man is coming. Be sober, be vigilant. On this Christmas morning commemorating 2,000 years ago, we need to understand that there was a natural phenomena that got the attention of some of the wise men. We know that some of them made a journey to Jerusalem. We also know that they had been studying the Holy Scriptures, the writings of Balaam, an apostate prophet of God who was of probably the same priestly line as they were. And we also know that their convictions were deepened by the power of the Holy Spirit, the inner witness. There is this sense that what they're doing is the right thing. And night by night, the desire of ages says when they stop and they take a break, they're looking into the prophet's and the prophecies, and their conviction is deepening. Good thing it is, because when they arrive at Jerusalem, they're stunned by the absence of awareness. Nobody seems to know anything. And what's worse than that is they are heathen in the mind of all those who live inside the holy city. Interesting contrast. They're heathen. And when the Pharisees hear that this entourage, probably many people, even if there were only three wise men, there would have been an entourage for protection and transportation of necessities, supplies, and the well. And these heathen have arrived, and the Pharisees are spurning them. They're not going to get information from those. Those are the people that the Jerusalemites call dogs. Herod finally summons them. There is this political engagement. And he says, go find the boy. And when you find him, come back and tell me. Now, I, I want to talk about a few things here before we go forward. When they leave the precincts of the palace and they walk out the gates of Jerusalem, are they planning to go back to see Herod? In your own mind, answer the question, yes or no? The answer must be yes because when they're done worshiping Jesus, they have a divine encounter through a dream where they're told no. Why does this matter on our journey? It matters because for, for our hearts to be impressible and our spirits to be brought to attention, we must live our lives in a simple childlike sincerity. There must be a humble sincerity of purpose about us that allows the divine impress to say what only God could say to us in those moments. And living in the arena of, of evil thinking and conspiratorial thinking leaves us without the ability 
to encounter people believing the best and taking things at face value. They took the encounter with Herod at face value. But God was working in the lives of these children of his, aged men though they might have been. And it's important for you to understand that no matter who gets in your way, if you desire to see the face of Jesus and be ready for his second coming, the journey of the wise men is but a little illustration of your journey. There will be people who supposedly know more and know better and have letters after their name. There is nothing wrong with letters after somebody's name. As a matter of fact, it is a great blessing in many situations. But when it comes to religious men and women, letters after one's name can replace the understanding that comes from bowing before the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. If those two things can be meted up and matched together, what a glorious influence somebody can have. But somebody who thinks they know more because more has been taught to them and they become more full of themselves might know less than that beautifully polished stone, that beautifully polished jewel, Yes, that beautifully polished Christian who's allowed Jesus to bring the hammer and the chisel onto his character or her character that's held the beauty of that potential jewel on the polishing stone. You see, friends, you can put the two things together. You can bring someone who knows more because they've gotten an education in which the humility of learning begins by bowing before Christ and letting the Bible reign supreme as the final arbiter of truth, and letting the cross come into practical application in their life. Or you can deal with people like the wise men had to deal with who knew more than those heathen dogs did, but they don't really know themselves and they're not discerners of the time. The beauty of this is, is that the humblest person who allows their life to be polished and chiseled, yes, these are the people you need to recognize the heavenly light is flowing through. And by the way, friends, the light is still shining in heathendom. God still has people. And some of them don't have the advantages of holy living and religious culture and lifestyle, but their hearts are sincere and their hearts are humble. And they're ready to be taught and to be led. Yes, as we look at this story, they make their way into Jerusalem. The light goes out. And the darkness seems to deepen inside the city. And finally, this is one of the most beautiful parts of the story, as they get ready to leave, they now know it's Bethlehem. It appears that they leave in the evening because when they go outside the gates of Jerusalem, the star reappears. This is an amazing thing. They're not discouraged. They needed all the assurance of all those nights of prayer and dialogue to deepen their conviction because there was a lot of disappointment and confusion inside the city. And our lives need to be the same way. It's not just make a good decision. It's not pros and cons. It's not benefits and detriments. No, our lives are to be prayerfully and wonderfully surrendered up to God. You don't just start on a long journey that might take you weeks without counting the cost. And some of the commitments God's calling you to in this next year are commitments that are going to transform your life. How many wandering looks and condescending glances did these wise men get as they left their city of origin and started out following a star? They needed to be sure they were doing what God asked them to do. And as inconvenient as it was and as expensive as it was, 
It was a journey that brought them great peace. You need to connect yourselves. We must connect ourselves with others that are making that same journey. And there's one more disappointment for them. The shepherds were warned. The Messiah is a poor baby. The wise men were not. And you need to know on your journey, God will affirm you in the beginning. He will speak peace to your hearts, but he's going to allow you to go through some faith-building, disappointing times. That's what happens to people who learn to know him. That's what happened to people who encountered him. The the depth of his guiding in the past is the momentum and the inertia to take them through the difficult times. And so, as they go to leave, they're warned in a dream, don't go back. Don't go back. I found myself in Home Depot this week. I was in the back right corner, and then I saw a familiar face walk up. This person looked at me. I looked at him. I called him by name. I don't believe he's a Seventh-day Adventist. He was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist. I know that. I know that for about the next half hour to 45 minutes, we stood there and we visited. Finally, after visiting for a little while and some of the things he told me, he had mentioned in the conversation he was an agnostic Well, that means you believe there's a God, but he's not personal and you're not sure. But he told me that his wife will play 3ABN on her phone and she'll turn it up real loud. And he's listening. And if you're listening here today, praise the Lord. And as as he's listening, he's now starting to spout out to me the names of some of these people that are on 3ABN. And he's telling me how much he respects this one. And then he talks to me about his brother, who's a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, and how much he respects this one. And the Lord moved on my heart, and I called him by name, and he said, I don't think you're the agnostic that you think you are. And he took his fist, and he held it out to me to give me a fist bump. He says, yeah, that's what my wife says too. (laughs) I didn't meet him by accident. There was a divine hand shepherding his life and my life to the same place for just such a moment as this. Listen, on this Christmas morning, I want you to know something. Jesus used the wise men to awaken the not-so-wise men in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus was deepening the conviction and the commitments of the wise men relative to their witness when they got home. But the story that gets out in front of all of them is a not-so-wise man's donkey whom Jesus was using to reach even him. It doesn't matter where you've been. Don't look at yourself. Look to the Lord. It doesn't matter what you've done. Don't review your record except long enough to say, Lord, have mercy on me. But remember this. Everybody's on a journey, and it's either full of trivial pursuits, God forbid, or the landscape of your mind has got enough empty places in it to where if God wanted to give you a dream, it would have some meaning. Because the three ways God spoke, natural phenomena, study of the Bible, and dreams.
Listen, I don't ever dream. Almost never. Some people I know dream a lot. But I do know this. At the end of the days, your sons and daughters are going to dream dreams and your old men are going to see visions. So how does trivial pursuit fit into being ready to see Jesus when He comes back in all of His glory? I'm appealing to all of you. You're all on a journey. Which way are you going? Have you looked far enough down the road to say, this is where my destination's taking me? Does the peace that passes understanding reside in your heart? It can. It should. When I hear Balaam's donkey talking, probably on the same journey, at least the same general trajectory as the wise men 1,500 years later, when I hear Balaam's donkey talking, I hear a God saying, I want to reach you too, Balaam. When I see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane letting, letting Judas give him a kiss, and he's saying, Judas, you're not betraying me with a kiss, are you? I see a God up to the very last hours and moments trying to reach out and redirect the path of his wandering sheep. If you think you're one of those wandering sheep this morning, I'm inviting you to let the hand that's nail-pierced and would have gone there just for you to be the one that guides you on the journey. Choosing a career, choosing a spouse, choosing a place to live, changing a job, accepting a responsibility in the church, receiving that very inconvenient invitation to interrupt your plans and go visit somebody who's battling cancer or, or even less or more unimportant. Go do the dishes. The very inconvenience of the cross is the journey of Jesus from heaven to earth. And this morning, I want you to understand, he'll affirm you, he'll direct you, he'll test your faith, he'll sustain you. He's there for you in all places. Our world is in deep trouble. The good news is, the light is still shining. The shepherd is still leading. The peace of God still passes all understanding. And I'm inviting anyone listening to me today, live or online, give Jesus perfect permission today. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus, the song says. There's room in my heart for you. I'm inviting you, friends. May God be free to be Lord of all and lead you on the journey. May God help us on this wonderful Sabbath that coincides with reflecting on the incarnation to make the decisions that lead us to the light. Let's pray. Lord, you draw us out of ourselves by asking us to make commitments. However long the journey to Jerusalem took, Lord, it was a big commitment. And on the way, their confidence deepened. Their assurance was strengthened. Some of the things you're asking us to do, Lord, that are very inconvenient and maybe unpalatable are the very instrumentality and methodology for deepening and transforming and changing us. If anybody's listening to me this morning, Lord, as... I've stood here on your behalf and they know they're going the wrong way. May they come back to a simple childlike faith that says, I believe. May they have that simple childlike faith that the wise men had and that the apostles had and that so many millions have had that have trusted in you. May it not be corrupted by the arrogance of this age. 
Please forgive our sins, Lord. Thank you for going from heaven to earth and back to heaven again so that we could go home. We know it's soon, Lord. Help us to let you lead us in the journey. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.